Thank you for the snow. Uh, we can always use the moisture, and we're very grateful. Thank you, Lord, for uh, blessing us. Every day we have a blessing. We have life. We have food. Lord, we have the opportunities to do good to others, and Lord, uh, we're very grateful for that. And thank you, Lord, for sending your son today. What a great passage that we just read. So bless us as we spend time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. You probably noticed that uh, kids, oh yeah, probably a good thing. Kids, out, what we have. Thank you. You probably noticed how bleak it is up here, right? Uh, that's because the people that normally decorate were off this week. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, Judy. <laughs> this is on purpose because we are, hey, how are you? Is that great? You see, Heather, that's why I said we talked about polishing this better. I know, don't polish it. Let it be raw. This is who we are. So this week, I mean, the whole Advent series, we're going on a journey. Why Christmas? Okay. And uh, we're going to start working through the, the categories that we usually celebrate with the candles. Okay. But we're going to look at the opposite of each of them and take an individual journey each week and talk about today how to get from desolation or that feeling of feeling desolate to feeling loved. What does that look like? And so, yes, we have the candles. We have all this stuff. We have all the rituals and all the things that we are, we do on Advent. But as I've said many times, one of the, one of the challenges, which I love, is having a church full of, well, not today. Everybody's going to tell me this, the weather. I know they're up skiing. So <laughs> the, uh, we have a church full of different denominations, and all of you have different experiences. So we, we carefully weave all that together to uh, create an experience, a journey for you, because we don't know where you've come along the way. When you walk through the doors, I mean, just this week alone, two of my dear friends here at the church have, uh, were just diagnosed with cancer. One whose cancer is in remission, hasn't been very long, I don't even think a year. The cancer has come back, and so uh, with force. And that's just the three that I know about. And so Rob and I, every week, we try to create, and Leland, we get involved in, we try to create this journey where uh, when you walk in, wherever you've come from on all the points of the compass where, regarding stress, that when you leave here, you can rest for just a moment. So I want everybody to stop and just breathe deep for a little bit. Just breathe with me. Just relax. Today, the journey is from desolation or feeling desolate to love. That's the journey today. We have rearranged what we what is the traditional uh, order of the four because love is the central piece of Christianity. Everything else flows out of that. So we thought we'd start with love and we'd finish on Christmas Eve with hope. Because true hope, you can't have it without love. So that's why we started. So as I've said many times, when we do rituals here and traditions, if we're not careful, we create something we don't want to create. And the, the older version of 1 Corinthians, it says, we see through a glass darkly. 
And so that's a hard passage to translate. But what we do know is that right now, uh, by the aid of the Spirit, we're making sense of what we see in darkness and bringing it to light. So when a ritual done well, when it just clears the glass and we can see Christ coming into our world. A ritual done poorly just makes you feel good about yourself, and we don't want that. If you understand Christ coming into our world, then you will also understand uh, how wonderful it feels. But don't make the feeling the first thing. Really take the time throughout the season to explore why did we just light a candle? Why are we doing a journey from desolation to love? What happened there? So we started, normally when you walk in the first Sunday of Advent, we have Christmas decorations everywhere. And so Rob uh, worked with Judy and Jan and some of the others and said, no, let's make it desolate. Because that's where we're coming from today. And then throughout the course of Advent, it's going to get more and more full with decorations and lights. And it becomes more joyful as time goes by. That's by design. God helped us today by giving us a blizzard. Feels kind of desolate, doesn't it, out there? Do you know how hard my commute is? <laughs> now think about it. I had to walk from my house all the way out to the street, all the way over, and all the way back. You just had to walk out into your garage. Okay? Somebody said maybe we should put in an underground tunnel <laughs> to the church. So, uh, but it feels desolate, doesn't it? And, and that's not an unusual feeling, especially for us up here. We're used to this kind of weather, the cold, the blizzarding, all of that when it comes. But it still has that feeling. So we want to talk that through. So we're going to be on a journey each week. And each of the journeys is a longer segment of the journey to Christmas, the Christ event, when the Messiah, when we celebrate his birth. And so each week is going to be a little bit more, a little bit more in here. And you're going to see it fill up. So I've wondered many times... Um, what it would be like to live without love. What would that be like? You know, when I talk about how dark the ancient world was, I cannot overstate until God brought this in here. You know, we, we argue about the law, the Levitical code, the Mosaic law. Um, most, honestly, most churches just ignore it. And those that don't, we don't know what to do with it. But you got to understand, until God spoke, it was the darkest, darkest place in the world. We have plenty of evidence now of the ancient world, what it looked like, all right? The mistreatment of humans, uh, all of that, the unfairness of life. It was a really dark world because they had no idea about morality, which seems natural to us, but it wasn't back then. It just wasn't. So the world was filled with horrible practices of the way kings treated people, the way husbands treated wives, uh, you know, in Egypt at the time that Israel left, there was no limit on the number of times a husband could beat a wife. It's, mar- it's remarkable. And so when this came into the world, uh, a light shined. And as we work through Advent, you're going to hear all the famous Christian passages, and you're going to begin to see about light shining in a dark world, the land of the Gentiles who had no difference. And really, the land who knew no difference, the land of the Israelites, They lived in a dark world too. They had only heard the stories about God and that was over 400 years earlier. They had not heard from him. He was quiet. So when God started to speak, the world didn't have this. So they didn't know what to do. The gods were always angry as far as they knew. And so we can open up the ancient divination codes now. They had them compiled in books. 
that the priests of all the nations. So you kill a sheep and you take the heart out and you, you smack it. And, and depending on how the, how the pieces fall, they could look up and say, oh, that means the God is, gods are angry with us or they're not angry with us or whatever. It was a very superstitious, dark world. And so when this came along, it was a bright spotlight. First of all, God spoke, but God's never spoke. Not only did he speak, he spoke and told him how much he loved him. We have a Hebrew word for that. Chesed is the word. It's chesed with a rough H. And it talks about, it's a word that's fairly unique to uh, Hebrew. Uh, you don't find it outside. By the way, the New Testament uses the word agape. You've knew, you know that word. Again, it's very unusual to find that word used very much. Those are words that they, they, they co-opted into their language to explain the unexplainable. How there could be a God who really loves and cares for them. And that's the central part of Christianity. Don't believe all the stereotypes and the judgments that you hear. Not because they're not true, they just shouldn't be. But just for today, set them all aside. Just set them all aside and let's, let's look a little deeper into what it should look like. What God intended all along. People have said many times the Old Testament is full of all kinds of judgment. It is. Uh, for the people that aren't faithful, the people that are rebellious, it's full of judgment. But for the people that's faithful, it's filled with love and hope, kindness, care, all of that. And so what the law becomes, we think of it as a set of rules because that's how we understand a legal code. But that's not how they understood it. Think of the law as snapshots of wisdom of how to live in a dark world. They were allowed to break it, and many of them did. David did. Jesus himself did because they found a better way. And so the Old Testament, the law, the Mosaic law, are snapshots of grace and wisdom. And that was the purpose of the law, was to teach them wisdom in a very dark world. So you can imagine the first time they hear about God. We've talked about that sitting at Mount Sinai. He gives them his name. No God ever gave their name. And so it's a very desolate place. And so when Rob and I talked about this journey with the children's ministry, because they were involved in the conversation, how do we, how do we create a journey uh, and get the kids involved? From So today, desolation to love. And what does it look like to be desolate? There's a lot of places we could go. I mean, can you imagine Mary? Just picture that for a moment. She finds out she's pregnant. And she goes to the one person she trusts the most the one she's betrothed to, her fiancé, and he doesn't believe her. So he decides to divorce her privately. Can you imagine the loneliness, the desolation, the coldness? What is she going to say to her friends and neighbors? Oh, the Holy Spirit did this. That's just not going to fly, is it? And so if God had not intervened at that point in time, boy, life would have been much harder it was already hard enough. Do you remember the Pharisees, what they said to Jesus? At least we know who our Father is. No secrets in a small town. Memories are kept. They are. And so God intervened by going to Joseph. Have you ever been, I have, been in a place where I remember many years ago with my first wife, she was terminally ill, opening the refrigerator and there's nothing in it. I have no money. I have no job. I don't even have enough gas in the car to drive. I was walking everywhere. And I just knelt down and just said, Lord, and wept and said, if you don't intervene, my wife, who's terminally ill, and I are going to, we're not going to eat tonight. 
Then I hear shuffling at the door, open the door, and there's our associate pastor in our church, two bags of groceries with a piece of paper. My address is on it. He looks up and says, I suppose it's too late to be anonymous, huh? (laughs) And I went through that many times in the early years. And we're going to see why in just a little bit. Jeremiah talks about this, why that's important. Have you been there? Desolate? What about David? Saul's chasing him all over. His enemies are chasing. He's hiding from cave to cave, trying to just stay alive, having to trust the Lord. The Psalms are full of laments, that desolation, that aloneness that we talked about. So I decided to go to a particular book today to look at a couple of passages to give us a glimpse of what that desolation looks like, what it looks like to feel desolate. We're going to look at Lamentations. Now, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. That's why it's Jeremiah and Lamentations are together in the, in the Old Testament. So he is in Jerusalem, and he's in the final days, if not hours, of Jerusalem's history. Okay, now you've got to picture where he is, where he's come through, come from. Okay, what did God say in uh, Exodus and the Wanderings? I mean, at the, uh, Mount Sinai. If you obey me fully, I'm going to make you into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And all the joy and glory that goes with that, you will be my prized possession and I will be your God. I will take care of you. Do not be afraid. And so they went to the heights of glory under David and then down into the abyss of sin, rebellion. The northern kingdom by now is gone. All the cities outside of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom have now been destroyed by the Babylonians. And uh, Jerusalem is the only city left. And they're surrounded. And so the Babylonian army are beating on the walls. They're, They're beginning to break through. And he writes lamentations. It's a lament. It's, he writes lamentations. If you read it carefully, um, they're eating the children. They've been so long without food. And still, they didn't turn back to the Lord. What did they say? This is the Lord's temple. He won't let this city fall. People say that to me. This is the Lord's church. He won't let it fall. Tell that to Europe. We're less than 1% now are Christian. The home of the Reformation the birthplace of the Reformation. Yeah, he'll let it fall real fast. What does he say to the letters of the churches in Revelation? If you don't turn back, I'm going to remove your lampstand from your church. He'll let it fall that fast. And that's why we have staff and elders always help you to learn how to stay focused and stay faithful. God's, it's a gift to you. And so Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah writes this with a deep feeling of of desolation, aloneness. He's seen the glory, and now it's at the end. And there's nothing left. And you can hear the battering rams now. And you can see the chunks of concrete flying as they're, uh, not concrete, it's actually limestone. They're throwing the missiles over, and everywhere it hits limestone, it explodes in this city. And there's not much time left. So this is what he writes. How deserted, this is the opening verse. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was a queen among the provinces is now a slave. So what is it like to feel desolate? 
It's humiliating to go from the top to the bottom. It's humiliating. He felt it. The faithful felt it. But it's more than humiliating. It also has that sense of hopeless. Look at the next verse. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Do you ever cry and weep? Feeling alone? I loved what Cody said about he learned that every human has to go through this. Every human. So, bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all of her lovers, there's no one to comfort her. All of her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. You ever have a friend betray you? I have two friends like that. Good, good friends. Betrayed me long ago. And I'll be honest with you. Not going to lie. Every week I have to still work on forgiveness for the hurt and the pain and the anger. They never repented, never turned back. I lost them as friends. I miss them severely. And this is what he's feeling. Everybody that appeared to be their friend has turned away from them. But more than that, it's also lonely. Look in verse uh, 13. From uh, on high, he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. I mean, that's pretty deep when you're starting to feel the desolation all the way down inside. It fills it in his bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all day long. This whole book is a series of poems that he wrote about sorrow, about desolation, about loneliness, embarrassment, humiliation. The whole book. It's an amazing, very short book of the final days and hours of Jerusalem. <clears throat> but then he goes on and says, there's, there's really no comfort. In verse 16, this is why I weep. My eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me and no one to restore my spirit. Children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Wow. To be at that last place, no one to comfort. It's interesting when you look back here and you read Lamentations, Jeremiah never asked the Lord to change it. He never asked the Lord to change it. I confess that's one of my prayers when I feel desolate. Can you change it? He didn't ask that. What he did was, and this is a question for you, because the reason why we're doing this journey is this should describe the character of our church, the, the, um, what it means to be humble and to remember our roots and where we came from and to continue to strive to be a church. One of the things we learn from church history is that we are one generation from losing what we have. That's how fast they can disappear. And so we have a vital role to play in the kingdom of God as a church. So when you look back, can you see that those deepest sufferings cleared the way for future growth when you look back on it? During, the, during it, you couldn't see it. But when you look back, I remember when my first wife died. I remember it so clearly. I remember not understanding it, the desperation, the loneliness, the trying to make sense of, of all of this world and uh, trying to understand what kind of a God would take away my best friend. 
Well, now years later, by the way, she's, and I'll tell you this in just a minute. I'll, I'll continue the story. Um, years later, I looked back and uh, not bragging. I just had gotten to the point with a terminally ill wife. I just gave up every hobby. And all I did was take care of her. That's all I did. That's all I could do with two small children. And so there's no way I could be here today if she was still here. Unless the Lord healed her or take, took her home, he took her home. And she wasn't afraid of that. She talked to, wanted to talk to me about my future wife. And it's like, not a chance. Well, after she died, what I realized, I come to find out, was that she had been talking to all of her friends about how to help me and take care of me until God brought me another wife. She had talked to the children that God's going to bring you another mom. Because she knew. She wasn't afraid. I was afraid. But she wasn't. So she took me to a verse, and this has to do with the question when looking ahead, can you see in the middle of that loneliness, can you see that those deepest sufferings are necessary and that they compel, they prepare the way they push you into future growth if you let them? Jeremiah saw it. He wasn't hopeless. He never asked God to change it. Here's what he said. Famous verse. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Okay, pause. Just think about that. It's because of his love that he didn't consume us. When Adam and Eve first sinned, why didn't he just wipe it out and start over again? When we sin, why doesn't he do that? Because of his love. That's why. Like any good parent, he created us, so he loves us. So he spends the rest of our life luring us to trust him more and more, to depend on him. And this is where suffering comes in. I've said many times that Suffering is a, a necessity. It's an essential part of Christian theology because once we sinned, if all God did was bless us, we would never need him again. And so it's in the deepest suffering that we have the choice to turn back to him in a deeper way, which I did when my wife died, or to rebel and get angry and turn away and I want nothing to do with him. Honestly, I cried every night for a long time. When I put the kids to bed, came downstairs, I just sat, sat halfway down the stairs and just wept for a half hour at the loneliness of it. And yet that compelled me to want to know more. Okay? So because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed because his compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning great is his faithfulness. So Judy, before she died, she didn't know anything about my own brokenness. Sometimes if you want to have coffee, I'll be glad to tell you about it. It's not appropriate here. She didn't know anything about it, but she suspected it because toward the very end of her life, some of the last things she said was, you don't have to worry, Jim. You don't have to worry. Every morning when you wake up, God wipes the slate clean. It's right here. Every morning. In other words, he doesn't remember what you did yesterday. She knew at some level there was a pretty dark, broken part of me. That didn't come out until Nancy. She knew. So she and I talked at the very end. Even she died on Monday. Sunday morning was the last time we could talk. And before she went into a coma. And we talked and I promised her to be faithful. I've never forgotten that promise. And God has blessed me every step of the way and helped me to be faithful. Oh, it hasn't been a life of roses, I'll tell you that much. It's been a challenging walk, but I never gave up. 
And that's what Jeremiah is talking about here. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. You see, the answer in the deepest desolation is to seek God. That's really the answer. Because whatever he's doing in your life, he's doing it for your good. And that's what Jeremiah is doing here. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him, even if you don't feel like it. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Okay, everybody pause. Just wait. Take a deep breath. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Why is it good? <clears throat> How else do you know your faith is real if it's never tested? You'd never know. It has to be tested. Okay, so what is Christian love all about? I'm going to read a passage. I'm going to close with this. The words that are used in our language in the Bible about love are fairly unique to the writings of Scripture, okay? You don't find them used very much outside. It's capturing the idea that the ancient world's never thought of. God's love is based on his character and his covenant. He will not break his covenant. He made a promise. Now, he gives you the freedom to reject it, but he will never break his promise. And so there's an example of this in Hebrews 4, in verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow. Everything you've ever done, everything, every thought, everything you've done is going to, is laid bare publicly for the Lord to look at. That doesn't sound very comforting to you, to you, does it? But then it, in the wisdom of our translators, we have a uh, paragraph break and a title just to make sure you don't connect the dots. I have no idea why we do that. That's not what happens in Greek. Here's how it goes on. Therefore, based on this fact that God knows everything there is to know about you, based on this fact, therefore... Um, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hang on, don't give up. You see, the purpose of the high priest is to bless you, to bring you into God's presence, and to bless you. We now have a high priest who does that. And he's saying, don't give up. These people were threatening to walk away. The temple is soon to be destroyed right after this. They don't know that yet. But, uh, but the Roman Empire is cracking down on them. There's already suffering beginning to occur. They can hear the animals bleeding as, they, as the Jews led them down to sacrifice them. And they're tempted to turn back to Judaism. He says, no, 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 no. Hang on. Hang on. Just hang on. And he goes on, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, our high priest has been through everything that you're going to go through. Hunger, torture, pain, loneliness. He's been through it all. He's showing you it can be done. Don't, 
don't give up. I wonder what it was like at the end of his life. Last thing he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've said that. Where are you, God? David said it in the, in the Psalms. Where are you, God? What's it like? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you blink, open your eyes, and you're standing in his presence. And for the first time, you feel his embrace. You look in those eyes that twinkle with delight. Welcome home. It's so good to see you. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, therefore, verse 16, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. When's your greatest time of need? When you feel most desolate. He doesn't say so you find judgment. I don't know where this entered into the church, but this is not the kind of guy that we serve. Okay? Not as a faithful, part of the faithful remnant. No. You see, when you close your eyes, what you find and you open them again is you find eyes twinkling with delight. If you could see them now, you would see them twinkling. So the desolation that we often feel, sometimes it's there to clear the way for something better that's coming. Stand firm. Hang in there. You know, we have a couple of verses that come to mind. We say them all the time. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what it's like to feel love, but not everybody in this world does. How many times have we talked about the, the innocence in war, the Israel-Palestine-Hamas war, the Russian-Ukraine war? I hate war. I hate war, right? But there's innocence everywhere. What about the starving in Cambodia? Okay, everywhere you look, what about the, you can't even get into North Korea or Bhutan. What about the Christians surviving there? You see, we know how, we should know how to show love. How is the world ever going to see the kingdom if we're not that way? So I go back to the question I ask regularly. Many of you have heard it. What kind of church are we becoming? Not what kind of church are we? Because we got to work at it week after week after week. Because Satan distracts us with everything. Are we still becoming a church that is authentic and loving? Right? Think about the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world. Okay, let's change it. God loved the world so much. He loved you so much. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. So much that he gave his only son. You see, that's the answer to desolation. Genuine, authentic love. Father, thank you for thank you for being a God who really does love us. A God who is jealous for us when people try to hurt us. A God who cares about the widows, the orphans, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the innocent, the victims, the ones around the world, the poor. Lord, that even this very moment are suffering and struggling. God, I'm grateful. I'm not going to lie. I'm grateful that you put me here because my suffering now is minimal compared to what many of us have seen around the world. Thank you for being a God who cares about us and about those who are struggling. Help us to be that kind of people. In your son's name, Jesus, who is our high priest, we pray, amen.